0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. We live in a strange age where computer programmers are perhaps in some ways nervous around books and authors are very nervous around The threat of AI automation and the way in which, for for many authors, it seems as if the latest wave of of AI may not only undermine their profession, but their very thinking, their very creativity and activity. Few people think about books and AI together, but my guest today, I think, has a a different take. Michael Lippmann is a professor at Brown University of, of Computer Science. And he has a new book out called Code to Joy. He's joining us. Uh, Michael, you've gone through this process of writing a book. Was it like programming? How do you compare the act of writing a book and the act of programming? Your new book is uh, a book about the joy of programming. But I'm curious as to your comparison of of writing and programming. Are they essentially the same thing?
1: Oh, that's a a wonderful question. I... um... I would not say they they are the same thing, but I would say that that there's a lot of really interesting parallels. So one of the parallels that I would mention is that writing is something that basically everyone in society does. We're all taught to to read and write very, very early on. And so this is something that's just sort of part of who we are. But very few of us go through the process of learning how to write basically for a mass audience, write a document that you can hand over to lots of different people and they'll be able to... Understand what it is that you're getting at, right? So, writing a little to-do note for yourself, or a love letter for someone that you care about, or um, or just a request to somebody uh, to you know stop scratching your car, right? We all use writing, but writing something that's that's large and needs to stand on its own is a much harder activity. And I think the same thing could be true of programming. So, at the moment, most of the people who are programming are well, maybe that's not even true. But the people who make a living programming, software engineers have to write very large, very complicated programs that are used by lots of people in lots of different scenarios. And that is a really tough thing to do. And I think when people think about learning to program, people who are not programmers, they are very intimidated by it because it feels like that kind of activity. It would be sort of like saying, uh, well, we're not gonna teach you how to write at all because you're, not, you're never gonna be able to write the great American novel. So from my perspective, what the, the goal of the book is, is to kind of open up that fourth quadrant uh, what, is, what does it mean to program not for lots of people, but for yourself? Yeah, I wonder if uh,
0: you're not a historian necessary of literacy. We've done some shows on that, but uh, there must have been a point, particularly after the invention of a Gutenberg press, when writing went from being the activity of a, uh, an elite to one that was everybody did. Are you suggesting that the same might be true now of programming? Is that what your book is about? Suggesting that we can't just leave programming with the programmers. Everyone
1: needs to learn how to do it. That's exactly right. And so you're right. I'm not a, I'm not a scholar of the history of literacy, but I did end up writing a section for the book on the, the Korean writing language or the Korean writing system, which is known as Hangul, because I thought the parallels there were really intriguing. So hangul as a writing system is remarkable because you can actually learn it more or less in an, in a weekend. Uh you know you don't become necessarily very very good at it and you don't necessarily learn Korean, but you can learn it's a it's a phonetic uh system and so you can actually learn to pronounce words very very quickly. I visited South Korea last summer and I was I was able to sound out the signs because um and, and some of those signs had English words on them, but a lot of them were Korean words, and I didn't understand it. But being able to, to, to pick that up really quickly is remarkable. And the writing system itself was actually invented by a former you know, 1400s era emperor of, of Korea who said, you know, we need our own writing system. It's too difficult to learn how to write. The only people who are writing are religious scholars or legal scholars. It takes them their whole life to get good at it because there's tens of thousands of different symbols, and they're all based in Chinese, which is a different language than Korean. And it was just too hard. And he said, I think it's really important that people are able to make use of reading and writing to share knowledge, right? So farmers who are are working in the fields and come up with a good way of watering their crops, they should be able to share that with other farmers and and not just have everything go through the religious folks or the the legal folks. And so he created this system over a period of years, and uh, eventually it caught on And of course, it was just remarkable what what people were able to do once they had the ability to write what they wanted to write. Um, And the pushback was just so interesting because the scholars at the time said, no, we don't need a new writing system. This is plenty good for us. Why would anyone else ever need to learn to read and write? And I just I hear that kind of uh, that attitude all the time with with regards to programming. We don't need more professional programmers. OK, that's fine. But I still think it's very powerful for people to be able to tell computers what they want them to do.
0: Michael, we did a, a show earlier today with uh, my my weekly show with Keith Tier, a Silicon Valley based entrepreneur, summing up tech news. He, he argued this week that he thinks that OpenAI will be worth five trillion dollars in five years time. And it's already the most valuable company on the planet in terms of ai you're you're an authority you teach it you understand it is that this new wave revolutionary wave of generative ai is this the opportunity to make programming accessible for everyone or might this actually undermine the very act of programming
1: well i don't think it undermines the act of programming because when you are communicating with this this system this ChatGPT system you are expressing what you want it to tell you for example so you can phrase queries you can actually ask it to do tasks for you this is a kind of programming and it's actually a kind of program that, that's very accessible to people because it builds on what we already know about how to use language and how to tell other people what to do And in the book, I argue that that's really what programming is about. The learning of the the special symbols and when to use a semicolon and making sure your parentheses balance, that's, that's part of the annoying part of programming, but it's not the important part of programming. The important part of programming is knowing what you want the computer to do and to being able to express in natural language, if that's appropriate, what it is that the computer should do and have it carry it out for you. So I'm actually, yeah, I'm really excited about ChatGPT as as a gateway for people to be able to uh, really get the most out of their machines. Now, my biggest concern is that to the extent that this technology is being controlled by one multi-trillion dollar company, uh, that's very concerning because they're not necessarily, in, uh, they don't have necessarily the incentive to make it so that this is just a tool that empowers people. They really want it to be a tool that, um, I don't wanna say exploits people, but it's really about making a profit for themselves. And so my biggest concern is we're at a a really crucial point now when people get to have a little bit of a say as to whether or not this is a technology that they want to sign on to and they want to shape it in the direction that's most useful to them. And so that's why I think it's so important to be talking about people telling machines what to do at this stage. We don't want it to become the machines telling us what to do.
0: You know, and uh, of course, if we had Sam Altman on the phone, not on the phone, on the show, Mm -hmm. he probably would disagree with you. He claims, or at least OpenAI claims, to be creating safe AGI that benefits all of humanity. Are you suggesting that we should regard those sorts of statements from companies like OpenAI and Google and Microsoft uh, and all these other powerful AI companies with
1: a degree of skepticism? We certainly should. Yes, yes, yes. Skepticism is a very powerful tool. You don't want to be skeptical all the time of everything. But when a company is saying we're going to save everyone and don't worry, just trust us, I think that's a reason to kind of step back and say, okay, well, how is this actually going to play out? The, the, um, yeah, I don't know. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about, about OpenAI in particular, but it is the case that lots of other groups are now learning how to train up these models themselves. And I'm hoping that in the years to come, there'll be a, a, a proliferation, many, many flowers blooming, uh, and, and providing people with with the, the tools that they need.
0: When it comes to generative AI, uh, Michael, let's not pick on OpenAI because they're the pioneers of this, but there are many other companies now uh, pioneering it as well, with, with probably more resources than OpenAI itself. There's a lot of fear amongst writers and the creative community more generally that that these algorithms if that's the right word um these platforms are, are are stealing their
1: creativity should they be fearing this i i i would be concerned and i'm actually kind of heartened about some of the recent directions that the conversation's been taking but from yeah from my perspective the idea that these models are being trained on the output of human creativity so artwork and and photographs and Poetry and songs and novels. I mean, that's kind of amazing. And and when when scientists were doing it, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. I thought we were learning a tremendous amount about how to get information out of data and how it can be used. Now that companies are doing it primarily uh, you know, with a profit motive, I I get more worried. And I do think that people should have some say over whether their output is used in this way or not. The um, recently the in in the U.S. the the writers of basically Hollywood writers, various sorts uh, Mm. that went on strike. And one of their concerns was the idea that the production companies, the studios would be using various kinds of generative AI to, well, in some ways to simplify the jobs of the writers, but to take some of what, what they were paying the writers to do, do that in house and then turn over the results to writers to say, polish it and complete it and do what they had to do. And so it wasn't until the, the, the union and the studios came to an agreement about AI in particular, generative AI in particular, and the way it was going to impact their, their field, that they finally were able to come to an agreement. And now, I think as of yesterday or so, the, the, the strike is, a, is formally completed. So that's terrific. And I, and I was excited to read about that in the New York Times and thought, okay, well, what is this magic paragraph that's in the, in the contract now that finally got them to agree? And so I've I've been on the lookout to see when the union was actually going to post the the contract. And they did. And I read the AI stuff. And in some ways, it's all very pedestrian, obvious stuff. Like AI programs are not people. (laughs) They should not be treated as people. But there actually is a really deep and important insight in there, which is the idea that it must have been the case that the writers were concerned that the studios would ask a generative AI program to create basically the first draft of a script of a movie. Hmm. TV show, then turn that script over to a writer and say, hey, we had this written, Uh, we're just going to pay you to do some rewriting and just clean this up a bit, which is, I think, paid at a different scale than actually creating the thing in the first place. And so what the contract says is, first of all, if you're going to hand us text that was written by a machine, you need to disclose that. You need to tell us that it was written by a machine. And second of all, if we're the first human beings to actually touch this text, we need to be paid as the first human beings who are developing this this uh, this piece, and I just think that's wonderful because it it provides a particular model of of identifying what the role of these programs is and where people plug in and 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 just negotiating that relationship. And a lot of other fields now have to do that. It's just so far it's just the Hollywood writers who've done it, but it gives us a it gives us a bit of a template that we can use in other fields as well.
0: We are speaking with Michael L. Littman, the author of Ode to Joy, new book out, Why Everyone Should Learn a Little Programming. Uh, and I think there's a there's more than just a little message in the book about the universality, if you like, of, uh, of programming. And, and we'll talk about this ode or code to joy and the universal message uh, in a few minutes. Michael, let me... I don't always like to throw myself into the conversation, but my show has 1,700, 1,800 um, uh, episodes now. I The structure is pretty clear. I'm sure I often repeat myself, unfortunately. I don't want to, but I'm limited in what I know and what I can and can't say or what I should or shouldn't say. If open AI or the equivalent uh, generative AI uh, software downloads everything that I do. At what point will they simply be able to replicate Keen on? At what point will Andrew Keen himself? And of course, Andrew Keen himself for me isn't just an abstraction. At what point do I become redundant?
1: Uh, this is something that that I think a lot of people are thinking a lot about recently. And um, one of the things that's been very striking to me is in a lot of the lot of the stuff that I've been reading, where a professional of some field, let's say book translation looks at the output of these models basically doing their job for them or in place of them, what they tend to see is, first of all, that it's kind of competent. Like it can actually do lots and lots of different jobs, but it doesn't do them particularly well. And one of the words that comes up over and over again in this context, which really surprised me is people saying that the, the output lacks soul, which I think is just fascinating that people in different fields, of course, music, because they talk about soul a lot, but the writers are saying it, chefs are saying it. So you can actually ask one of these systems to prepare a recipe. Well, when I say prepare a recipe, I mean, write a recipe that a human could then cook. And then you eat the result of it. And it's like, yeah, that's food, <laughs> but it's not good. What's, what's missing? And what they, what they are saying is that there's, there's a lack of soul. And, and the way that I've been interpreting that particular idea is that when a person engages in a creative act, They generally have a purpose in doing so. They generally are trying to accomplish something, not just to produce the object, but the object itself is supposed to have some particular impact on people, to make them feel something, or maybe to make them uh, believe something that that they might not have otherwise believed. But there's always this kind of driving purpose, and everything is structured around that purpose. And one of the remarkable things about the way that generative AI is built today is it has absolutely no purpose. The only thing that it's trying to do is sound like the inputs that it was given. So we could probably train up an Andrew Keen lookalike that would sound a lot like you and would say this, the kinds of things that you would say and people would be able to look at it and say, yeah, that's Andrew Keen, but something's missing. The whole idea of what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, what your purpose is, would be missing. Now, I'm not saying that it's not possible for machines to have purpose. In fact, my research area for the last 30 plus years has been in a uh, area in artificial intelligence called reinforcement learning, where systems are given a goal, they're given a purpose, and then they have to figure out how to behave in some kind of simulated world to accomplish that purpose. That's not how generative AI is created today. It's created with the goal of sounding like the inputs, and I think until somebody figures out a way to train large systems at scale with a purpose, we're not going to get away from that. And these systems are just going to be competent, but not worth listening to.
0: And is this where your message perhaps becomes really important? Why everyone should learn a little programming? As I said, I don't want to, I generally don't bring myself into the argument, but extending what we were just talking about, um, generative AI producing a, a rather unconvincing in in human terms version of Andrew Keen should it be me doing the programming the little programming that you argue about in the book to give myself a really valuable helper is that why everyone including myself and any other creative or any other
1: kind of worker needs to learn how to code yeah, I think that's right. I mean, to me, the purpose of a computer is to carry out tasks for people. Like That's why they were built in the first place. And it turns out that in the early days, they weren't very powerful. And you people had to work very, very hard to express what they wanted in terms that the machine could actually carry out. And over time, it became clear that only certain people were willing to do that. Not everyone was willing to do it. You had to really invest a fair amount of effort to, to get to that stage. And so companies like, for example, Apple, Steve Jobs kind of stepped in and said, you know what, if we can make these things more human, more sort of take on more of the, 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 grud, the grunt work, then uh, people will be more engaged by these machines. He used the bicycle metaphor, didn't he? He did. Right. But what's fascinating to me is that it really I feel like the, the this his creations deviated quite a bit from that over time. And also really opened up the, po- oh, so, okay, just to remind people about the bicycle metaphor. He's like a computer is a bicycle for the mind. What's a bicycle? It helps you get from place to place. You're still using your legs, but it's not nearly as difficult. You can go a lot farther, a lot faster with the help of the bicycle than you could just with your own legs. And the the, metaf- the applying that metaphor to computers, it's like it's still your brain. You're still trying to do things that you want to do, but the computer can make it go faster and and, and longer, right, than you would have been able to do on your own. You won't have to fatigue as much because the computer will handle some of the more grungy details. And I, I believe in that vision quite a bit. I just don't think that modern computers are following that vision. I think in many cases, they are more like shackles <laughs> than they are like bicycles, in the sense that, uh, you know, when we go online and, and we're, we're getting recommendations from And Apple does this, but a lot of other companies do this as well. Google, that's kind of the main thing they do is make recommendations, help you find things that are on online. The 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 way that they do that doesn't really give you a lot of control. It sort of will show you things and maybe try to guess what you like from what you engage with, but at the end of the day, it's 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 in control and it can introduce into into your news stream or whatever things that you don't actually want but they want you to see <laughs> they meaning the companies that actually control the
0: And country. you can't always distinguish between what you're seeing which is content and what you're seeing is advertising extending the back the bicycle metaphor um uh I live in San Francisco a very hilly place as you know and I have an electronic bike and I cheat or a, an electronic bike allows me to cheat. And when I go up the very steep hills, I'm helped by a motor. Is that both the challenge and the opportunity when it comes to AI? And at what point
1: does the bike become a car? <laughs> well, so I'm not worried about bikes or cars. I, I actually drive a, a similar kind of electronic vehicle, though it's a unicycle. So that's kind of fun. But uh no, I think the concern becomes when you switch basically to a self-driving car, right? When you have a car that you don't get to pick the route anymore, the car just decides on its own. So when you're driving or riding a bike or walking, you're picking the direction that you want to go. It's still your will, right? It's still your yeah. uh, sense of, of what you want to accomplish when you say, mm, okay just i want to end up in a certain place and and i can't and i have no way of telling the system for example i don't like fast turns i don't want to be on very highly polluted streets i don't want it to be very bumpy um i don't mind if it takes longer if it uses less fuel right there's a lot of things that are preferences that i can express that if i can't tell the machine to follow those preferences i'm out of the loop right and that's that's what i'm really concerned about i think the more that people can are comfortable with the idea of expressing what they want to the machine, the more that companies are going to feel obligated to build machines that allow for us to do that.
0: And that's what talking to a machine is. That's what programming is. Programming uh, gives many non-computer people the impression of a a, a, a very difficult foreign language. But you're saying that we all need to learn to be able to talk to machines so that, we get them to do what we want, not what Google or OpenAI or the
1: U.S. government wants us to do. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And I think one of the advantages that we have compared to, say, in the 80s when when uh, the the kind of usability, usability revolution started is that now the AI and machine learning can actually help machines meet us partway. And you mentioned this earlier in the context of something like ChatGPT. It's just easier for people to express things in natural language. We're just, we're, we've been doing it for our whole lives, and, it, and it's just much more straightforward. Getting over that hump and saying, okay, you don't have to learn how to balance parentheses. You don't have to learn that plus plus means make something a little larger. You can just use the words that you're already familiar with. The machines can help with that. They can actually help take up some of the slack. They're sufficiently powerful now that we don't have to be responsible for all the details ourselves. But it's still up to us to decide the direction these things need to go.
0: You're giving us agency, Michael. That's what we need. I, I wrote a book about agency. We are talking with Michael Littman, the author of Code to Joy, a computer scientist who can talk to all of us and a book, uh, Ode to Joy, or not, code to, uh, not Ode to Joy, Code to Joy, uh, which is suggesting that we all need to learn a little programming so that we can all talk to our computer. I want to thank our sponsor Liberties, an excellent new quarterly of culture and politics that often addresses a lot of these issues. I'm going to run a short ad for them. And then I want to come back uh, to talk to Michael about jobs and perhaps potentially a new renaissance that uh, the digital revolution may bring about. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 23 seconds. And you can subscribe to Liberties, and I would suggest everyone does so, at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with uh, Michael Lippman, one of the most human of computer (laughs) scientists, who has a new book out, Code to Joy. Michael, I was looking around your Twitter page, or what now is called X. And you had one reference from July about a new Brookings report on the geography of jobs in generative AI. The great question, of course, is whether this new technology will take away jobs or create new jobs. I know it's a very abstract subject, but it seems to be the heart of the matter. What's your take? Are you more excited or worried? Or are you simultaneously worried and excited about the potential (laughs) of all this new technology to create jobs?
1: i'm 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 bullish I'm, I'm excited about it i think the opportunities again to give people more capabilities that they can exploit to to do what they want to do is growing now that said the thing that worries me in the article uh, that you were referencing refers to this in various ways is that okay maybe there'll be more jobs but there will also be more inequality right so to if it's the case that some people uh, or some parts of the world are really kind of locked out and can't participate fully in this revolution that's a problem it doesn't necessarily have to be that way and so in in that in the article in the tweet that you were referring to it very much gets into this sort of idea that generative ai is kind of in cyberspace it's it's not in a physical location and nowadays people are much more comfortable with the idea that you can actually work on a team and be Someplace physically different from other members of the team, so I think it could very well be the case that lots of people can participate a- in a geography-free sort of way. That said, history kind of argues against it, right? It's, it's often the case that uh, power gets concentrated, uh, uh, communities of people who-, who share an interest gets concentrated in, in geographically in special places, and um, and and that would be a shame, right? That would be really unfortunate. Well, it's
0: more than a shame, and in fact in another tweet you referred to ted chang who wrote a wonderful a very brilliant uh, uh, science fiction writer who wrote a uh, a, 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 bi- a brilliant piece recently in the new yorker about the way in which tech is compounding inequality how do we address that um michael how can we yeah. how can we redesign not the technology itself but the industry so that it addresses inequality rather than compounds it
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I wish I could answer that. I mean, I'm not an expert in in social design or or political science, but I do think that the answer involves people coming together and working together to build a system that supports them. Right. So I think very much, very much the vision under which this country was created or this country was uh, founded was was on the idea that the way that we get things done is by working together and talking things out and trying to find a way to you know debate and disagree but ultimately take action and there's nothing in that model that says oh but the you know this technology is inevitable and the people who control it get to get to make all the rules that's just not the case like we can we can all stand up together and say this is not acceptable to us we need a system that has these properties instead and we can make it we can make the companies beholden to the idea that they have, they serve us right that they they exist with respect to support the, the society right and not the other way around so i don't know how to make that happen but i do think that people need to be stubborn in a way and and outspoken about how they feel like they're being impacted by this and and not accepting when they're being disempowered
0: your day job you're currently involved with the government but your day job is teaching computer science at brown we've had some people from stanford who teach computer science who are very much committed to educating or perhaps re-educating not just entrepreneurs but technologists about your their social
1: responsibility do you feel you have a responsibility as an educator absolutely yeah i mean so so to me the book is part of discharging that responsibility to try to help people see what their role is in this, in this bigger picture. And my department at Brown University has actually been a real pioneer in introducing what we, what we call their um, socially responsible computing into all of our classes. So there was some talk, I don't know, maybe uh, five, 10 years ago. that's like, hey, this seems important. We should make sure our students know about it. In fact, some of the, some of the problematic behaviors that were happening in these tech companies were being done by the kinds of people we were educating and, and we send a lot of our undergrads when they graduate they go off and work at these companies. We really wanted them to know what they were what they were doing and what they were getting into. So the discussion was should we have a class on that? And ultimately we decided no, we should not have a class on that. It should be part of every class. And so I was teaching a class on essentially uh, the, the mathematics of computing which is pretty abstract and not particularly socially relevant, but throughout the course, throughout the, the units that I covered, I would make sure to talk about, okay, well, this is, this is formal logic. That's kind of as divorced from reality as you can get, but here's how it's being used. And here's how it's being used to sometimes subjugate people. And we need to understand you can't hide behind math and say, well, I'm not responsible because the math did it. It is absolutely incumbent on all of us in the field to take responsibility for the impacts of what we're building.
0: Michael, the new book is called Code to Joy, which, of course, is a play on <laughs> Ode to Joy. Um, mm-hmm. And When most people think of Ode to Joy, they think of the final, the fourth movement of Beethoven's Great Ninth Symphony, mm-hmm. one of the, the most optimistic statements of the early 19th century, which, of course, soured throughout the 19th century and then into the 20th century. To what extent do you see this moment as a a repeat of the promise of the Enlightenment in terms of coding and technology? And and to what extent were you referring to that in in your choice of, of the title of the
1: book, Code to Joy? That's a that's a wonderfully erudite question. I love it. I I did not expect people to to get quite to that level of depth uh, in in playing with the title. I, we really were kind of linking it to the notion of well, it's about coding, and it's kind of putting a positive spin on it. Hence the joy part, and then you know the song kind of brings those two two, two ideas together. The title of the song, but um, but it's it's yeah. What you're what you're what you're raising is the thing that really keeps me up at night. Is that I feel like in the last, last 10 years or so, I feel very shaken personally about the way that society has been heading. Right. So as a, as a kid, it was, it always felt very much like, okay, well they're teaching us about democracy and how that's, you know, this sort of abstract idea, but of course this is how we live our lives. And of course we're free. Everybody's free. Like you're free to do whatever. And, uh, it's not the case that throughout history, that was true. And in fact, it's not the case that it's going to stay this way forever. And so that really, yeah, it really keeps me up at night, this sort of concern that the path, we're, we're now at a, at a place where the path could very well lead us to an erasure of those kinds of societal pleasantnesses, right, the, the, the notion that we can actually be our own people and, and not be subjugated in, in myriad ways. So, yeah, and I, you know, I'd like to say that I think engaging in programming and learning to be kind of self-efficacy, self self, self self-efficacy, the, the idea of self-efficacy, right? The idea that you can tell the machine what to do and that you can tell society what to do, that you have a say in that, They're, those are actually related concepts. But to be honest, I think the path that we're on if we don't directly take it on, not just using everybody learning how to code, uh, it, it really is very dark.
0: We've had many shows, Michael, finally, about regulation. We can talk about new laws. We can talk about you know, new forms of taxation. But often what isn't focused on is individual responsibility here or our ability to, to create our own agency. What can people do, people who are not skilled computer programmers, who don't have many hours every day to play around with open AI or, or the different programs. What can they do to begin to learn, as you say in the subtitle of, of your book, a little programming?
1: Sure, yeah. So it, throughout the book, so the, the book is organized into a bunch of sections that talk about the main building blocks that make up programs, the main concepts, and tries to, first of all, relate them to things that we all already do whenever we're interacting with people. These are all concepts that we're familiar with. They're not. It's not like hypercube space, like this abstract idea that you have to learn something brand new to relate to. It's something that we all already do. And so, in that context, I suggest in each each chapter, here is a relatively simple thing that you can do to kind of get your wrap your head around this particular concept. So, for example, the first content chapter is about is about sequencing commands. And I say, you can actually play around with this idea in the context of making an online questionnaire, right? It's not a big thing. It's not very hard to do. You're following steps. It's it's relatively simple. But you're starting to think about the fact that there's a difference between writing the questionnaire and then how it's received when it actually goes to a person. And that, that dichotomy is actually really critical in understanding how to think about and create programs. You have to think about the source code, the thing that you're writing as a person, and then how it runs when it actually goes to the computer. And so really simple little things that can actually strengthen our, the, 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 the foundations of the way that we think about these and give us a real basis for learning how to be more sophisticated programmers.